Last week, many Catholic schools had the day off for Martin Luther King Day. Many Catholic bishops took to Twitter praising Martin Luther King as more or less a quasi-saint. Today we look at one of the doctrines of Martin Luther King, namely pacifism. We examine this in light of the church's tradition to show that the church is in fact anti-war, but not pacifist. Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five Podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, the Editor-in-Chief of One Peter Five. Welcome to today's broadcast. We meant to do it on Martin Luther King Day last week, but I wasn't able to do that due to family sickness that arose. But we're doing okay now, and so at long last, here's the podcast. This podcast is a response to the growing, uh, we're coming up on a, a year of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, it's a response also in dialogue with my colleague over at Crisis Publications, Eric Sammons. He did a podcast called From Neocon to Antiwar, talking a little bit about his personal journey as an American citizen in growing up over the past few decades. Um, and today we will look at more broadly in, in terms of the history. We will also obviously touch on the United States and the American pol political scene and things going on with that. We're not going to comment directly too much on the Russia-Ukraine war. We're trying to just build a traditional Catholic stance towards war or an attitude towards war because, spoiler alert, um, the neocon American Catholic attitude is not traditionally Catholic. And we'll talk about why that is today. Before we do so, as always, when I ask you for your tax deductible support, we are a nonprofit, obviously, and we rely on your donations. So please support us. All of our content is free, but it's not free to produce. We do have bills to pay and miles to feed. So what we really need are monthly donors. So if you can become a monthly donor, that would really help us. $5 a month, $10 a month, $15, anything that you can afford helps us. And as always, before we get into everything, let's talk on our calendar, what's going on this week. We This um, this Epiphany Tide, we have four Sundays after Epiphany. So today is the, uh, this or this week is the third week after Epiphany. And then next week is the fourth week after Epiphany. And after that, it's up to Ajaisma. So Lent is coming very soon. Um, and so we only have two more weeks of Epiphany Tide. Today is St. Raymond Penyafort. We have St. Timothy of Ephesus and uh, the conversion of St. Paul. We're still in the octave of Christian unity, which is the uh, traditionally understood to be a week of prayer for non-Catholics to convert. And this ends with the conversion of St. Paul on Wednesday. And also we have St. Polycarp, St. John Chrysostom this week. So let's get into our topic. The church is anti-war, but not pacifist. So in our discussion, let's see if I can get this properly set. Okay, here we go. So in our discussion, uh, we will... We're going to build the tradition of the church regarding war in juxtaposition to the pagan view of war, which I will argue is, in fact, more or less synonymous with the neocon American Catholic view of war. It's, for, it's more of a pagan view of war. And then we'll later on, we will also get to Martin Luther King. We'll look at his doctrine. We'll look at his nonviolent civil rights movement, and we'll we'll discuss some of that. Um, so first, let's get into our terms. First, a pacifist more or less believes that war is intrinsically evil. War cannot be done under any circumstances, under any circumstances whatsoever. Whatever happening, you can't resort to war. 
even there's even a, the broader view of Martin Luther King is nonviolence. So not only war, but uh, basically a, a justified self-defense would would not be something that would be allowed either with the nonviolent view. So the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King obviously purported to be nonviolent. We'll talk about why it was not actually nonviolent. Now, anti-war is, is what I'm arguing here is, is the church's traditional stance. Now, part of this we need to understand is that we're talking about a political, uh, a political and economic reality. And so this is not a black and white thing where we simply, you know, it's a moral issue where we can kind of make a black and white determination. Every war is complicated, but I am going to claim in this broadcast that there are significant differences in modern wars as opposed to the church's just wars that the church herself has blessed. And so anti-war pacifism, more of an attitude. There is a doctrine here, obviously, but uh, anti-war is, is more of an attitude against war. So war is not intrinsically evil, yet war is a scourge of God's wrath and a result of sin. We know, for example, from the book of the Apocalypse, war is meted out as, as God's wrath. We know from the prophets, God sends these other empires to punish Israel. So we have war. War is this scourge. And we know also in the modern times from Fatima. Fatima, uh, it comes during the Great War, World War I, and warns of a greater war to come as God's wrath. So we know that God, the war itself is God's wrath, which is a result of sin. Now, anti-war and attitude, war attitude is that Christians must make every effort to prevent war by reconciling warring parties and promote peace by means of justice. Justice, or rather peace, says St. Augustine. St. Augustine defines peace as the tranquility of order. So everything in its right place, every nation has their just demands, has their just resources. That is what peace really is. Peace is not a ceasefire. As we'll see with the World Wars One and Two, the, the Allied powers after World War One basically punished the act the uh, central powers after World War One. And the peace of Versailles was not really a peace, it was a ceasefire. Germany was punished and the result of that punishment was a disaster for the entire world uh, because that helped to radicalize uh, Hitler and his movement, which obviously led to the Second World War. Um, so peace is the tranquility of order. It's, it's the means justice. The presence of justice is true peace. It's not merely a ceasefire. War, finally, war can only be justified under strict conditions. This is the just war theory. You can look it up in the New Catechism. The New Catechism contains the uh, the most developed form of the church's just war tradition, which came especially also in the Baroque period from the School of Salamanca in the Spanish Empire, who helped, helped develop this further, the existing just war tradition going back to St. Augustine. And then we have Blessed Emperor Carl, who gives us an example of the traditional Catholic attitude towards war. This is, um, here's here's Blessed Emperor Carl, one of our patrons at 1 Peter 5. And he was obviously one of the leaders of the central powers during the Great War, but he made every effort to broker peace. Even while he was fighting, it, before he became emperor, he was fighting on the front lines with his men. And then after he became emperor, he was still fighting and uh, visiting the troops everywhere. This was what inspired the father of Carol Wojtyla to name his son Carol in inspiration of Carl. So Carl, Carol, Charles, they're all the same name in different languages. Um, but John Paul II was named after Charles of Austria because his Polish father was so inspired by this emperor. But he made every effort to broker peace, to uh, negotiate, and to secure justice for all parties. First and foremost, his own people, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, but also to concede the just demands of the Allied powers. So this is the great example of, in our time, uh, 
Um, and then we have um, sort of this this other spectrum of the uh, the 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 war attitude, and that's the bellicose bellicose um, attitude here. Let's see, losing all of my. Uh, so the bellicose attitude is the American ne uh, Catholic neocon attitude, which is a very, which is not, they don't quite love war per se, but they're, they're eager to go to war. And this is what brings up this quote here from this, which is I, I got from the biography of Blessed Ember Carl. This is, uh, I was trying to set this up, so... Bear with me here. Sorry, technology. Okay, so here's a quote from Emperor Franz Joseph. So these, this was the predecessor to Blessed Emperor Carl. So here's Blessed Emperor, or no, he's a, not a blessed, but he is, he's, he's uh, somewhat pious at least. Emperor Franz Joseph. This is what he said to the Warhawks leading up to the Great War. So the Great War, uh, this was under Pius X. He was, Pius X was actually working to prevent war as a good trad Catholic should. Pius X was working to prevent the Great War in 1914. And so was a great warrior, Emperor Franz Joseph. And this is what is quoted in, in the um, biography by Charles Colomb. He says to those war hawks, those who want war have no absolutely no idea what war is. This is what he said to those war hawks of his empire who were pushing for war at that time leading up to the great war there was this there was this post-industrial belief that war was a good thing. War sort of developed countries and this darwinian idea of evolution and all this. Um and Franz Joseph's just, you have no idea because he's been on the front lines. So he's speaking from experience what war really is. And the modern American Catholic neocon, this bellicose pagan idea is an eagerness to go to war, especially by people who have never been to war. People who sit in their offices and order young men to their deaths for the sake of various economic or political interests. And I think that this quote here from Franz Joseph really rebukes them. And it, it really defends the people of a nation from these bellicose actors who can sit comfortably in an office and they can just think about these people, you know, these people who are dying as just numbers. And unfortunately, this is this is the attitude that we have seen even among Catholics in the United States, and it is not a traditional Catholic attitude. Let's look at let's look at holy tradition. First, we have the Beatitude, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. This is a Beatitude which the fathers understand, first of all, as a one has to make peace with christ in one's soul because there is a there is a tumult of one's own passions within one's soul and within one's with one's sins that one must make war against in order to have peace it's the same what happens in a, in a man's soul is the same thing that has the same thing it's a microcosm of what happens geopolitically and here here's this is a quote from saint jerome which really really um summarizes the holy tradition commenting on this verse here St. Jerome says this, quote, The peacemakers are pronounced blessed. They, namely, who make peace first within their own hearts, then between brethren at variance. For what avails it to make peace between others while in your heart are wars of rebellious vices, end quote. So the fathers understand this verse as talking about the spiritual life, but it becomes a microcosm of reconciling brother and brother. And... Um, this is, I mean, we should not underestimate the power of this beatitude. It really is a fundamental principle of tradition, a traditional Catholic attitude towards war. 
and that we are anti-war in the sense that we are peacemakers. We are peacemakers who, you know, blessed Emperor Carl was a peacemaker. He, he killed people on the battlefield, and yet he was a peacemaker because he was working in his situation for peace by means of justice. Here we have a second verse, Psalm 67, 31. This is a verse in which the Holy Ghost is condemning a bellicose attitude. The Holy Ghost is condemning the attitude of the warhawks. The Holy Ghost says, scatter thou the nations that delight in wars. We think of, let's see, what is it? It's, um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there is the prophecy of Amos. There is a also a, a similar a similar condemnation, which condemns all these nations. So I can find it really quickly here. Micaeus, Jonas, Amos. Um, yes, yes. So for three crimes of Damascus and for four, I will not convert it because they have thrashed Galad with iron wains. I will send fire into the house of Aziel. Uh, so it goes through all of these different foreign nations and Amos and the Holy Ghost through Amos condemns all these nations who are bellicose. They delight in wars and they're not only delighting in wars in, in wars of expansion, but they are viciously killing civilians. And this is so this is what the Holy Ghost says. Now, at the same time, we see in holy tradition that in, in the Holy Scriptures that there is a just war that God sends the Israelites into the Canaanitish nations to destroy them. He, uh, King David, obviously is a great warrior. He subdues foreign nations. Um, and there is a just war, but there is a, a temperance against this bellicose attitude. There's, and there's this attitude of, there's this attitude against staining your hands with blood. Obviously, this is the uh, after Adam and Eve sinned. This is the very first sin of the next generation with Cain and Abel. Uh, the Lord says, your brother's blood cries out from the earth. And King David wanted to, to build a temple, but God said, you cannot build a temple because you are a man of blood. And so King Solomon is raised up as a man of peace, and he's the one who builds the temple. So even, even though King David's wars were just wars, and even though he was a man after God's heart, still God wanted to bring his, his the first temple from a man of peace and not from a man of blood. And we'll see this sort of, this higher perfection of total peace in, in the two swords doctrine in just a minute. Um, but for first let's look at one more verse here from James one 27 religion, clean and undefiled before God, the father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their tribulation to keep oneself unspotted from this world. The reason I had to bring this up is because St. James brings the widows and orphans to our attention as sort of this, the pure, the purity of the pure Christian religion. Obviously, this is against the Marxist liberation theology of today, which is reducing the gospel to merely social justice. But we need to, we can't, again, underestimate this, this powerful, these powerful words from the Holy Spirit, because what is war except the creation of widows and orphans? War creates widows and orphans. That's what it does. It kills men who are husbands and fathers. And so if the church's pure and undefiled religion before God and Father is to care for widows and orphans, that is why we have an anti-war attitude, because war is hell. War is the scourge of God that must be prevented as much as we can. There should be no eagerness of any man any Christian to go to war or to encourage war to happen. 
We should do everything we can to try to prevent it. And if it's already going to stop it, to negotiate a peace. And so this, this brings us to the, the context of our situation today with the Russian Ukraine war Christians, we should be doing everything we can to uh, prevent sensational rhetoric to have a clear and sober mind, a rational mind, because war just creates widows and orphans. And the Christian church cares for widows and orphans. That is one of the things that has marked Christianity from the very beginning, marked it off and distinguished it from the pagan society is that we care for widows and orphans. Before the Christian church, there were no orphanages. There were no hospitals. There were no religious orders of people caring for widows and orphans. So Catholics should hate war because war creates widows and orphans. So even if there is this situation where we have to go to a uh, fight a just war and we reluctantly have to go to war in a situation that calls for it, we are creating a situation where there's going to be more widows and orphans. And so we need to have a zeal for establishing justice, forgiving our enemy after the war is complete. Let's look at some of the history here. And then we'll get into the modern situation. So here, here's the pagan view of war. This is exemplified, especially by the Roman Empire, uh, and as well as the Mohammedans. And one of the marks of the pagan view of war is that there's a standing professional army. A standing professional army. Notice we have in, in the United States or in, in modern countries, there are standing professional armies. So we've already got a pagan view of war because we have a professional army of people whose job is simply to make war. A standing army, meaning there's an army that's that's just there ready to go. All they do is train for war and they can go to war at a moment's notice. They don't they're not farmers. They're not, you know, going doing some other profession. They're a standing army. Now. Another aspect of the pagan view of war is that they're wars of empire and conquest. So these are not just wars, a just war, which is primarily defensive in terms of defending against an aggressor in a situation where there's no other way to resolve it. These are wars that are invading other countries to establish an empire, create further empire. Now, I have written at 1 Peter 5 many times that there is the United States is the American empire. And I don't say that lightly, but I do say that because the United States has waged many wars of conquest and empire, notably invading Catholic countries like Spain and Quebec, not quite Catholic per se, but Quebec city was Catholic under the crown, under the Anglican crown, the invasion of Canada in 1812, the War of 1812 was the invasion of Canada and the invasion of Mexico in 1848, as well as the invasion of the Spanish crown in 1898. And with further examples, we could we could, we could add. So the United States has expanded its territory by means of conquest, by means of this imperial expansion. And so that's why I say American empire. Unfortunately, that's the case. That's the reality. Now, an important aspect of this is that might makes right. That is a false philosophy which empires use to expand their territory. Might makes right. The stronger establishes his own justice over the weaker. Whereas the Christian view is the stronger must protect the weaker. Here is a quote from a conquered king. This is quoted in Tacitus, Vita Agricolae. Uh, so this is a Roman author who's quoting a conquered king, conquered by the Romans. They, the Roman Empire, quote, lust for dominion to robbery, slaughter, plunder. They give the line name of empire. They create a desolation and call it peace, end quote. 
St. Augustine says the Roman Empire was always rolling with dark fear and cruel lust in warlike slaughters and in blood. Empires are merely great robberies. That's from City of God against the Pagans. And in more recent, this is quoted by Pope Benedict, may he rest in peace. In his famous Regensburg Address, he quotes the Christian Roman Emperor Manuel uh, II, who says this, quote, God is not pleased with blood and not acting with logos is contrary to God's nature, end quote. So this is in contrast to the Mohammedans who do believe in might makes right. And we have the Christian Roman emperor of empire of the day. This was, I believe, in the 1300s in this quote here, which is a dialogue between a Christian Roman emperor and a Mohammedan. And so he's saying that God asks, acts with, with logos, with reason. This is the just war tradition, is that it restricts this pagan bellicose attitude, which wants to expand by means of these imperial wars and to say might makes right. And, or in the modern, in the modern uh, examples, we have this sort of provocation that's used this deception deceptive uh propaganda that's used to provoke um a this bellicose attitude uh which is really just the same sort of thing so let's look at what 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 was the influence of the christian church so first we have just war theory War can only be waged in a very strict, these very strict conditions. War is waged in order to establish justice and peace. So we have a situation which requires it. Now, we're not going to go into the, the doctrine of just war. You can look it up in your new catechism, like I said. Um, but essentially, it is the conditions for just war are if and only if war is the final answer. War is the only negotiations and, and every other means of preventing war have been fruitless. There's no other way to stop it. You have to go to war. So we can see that in the just war in this just war theory, because there's all these strict conditions, that in and of itself shows that the Catholics should have an anti-war stance an anti-war attitude we should not be eager to go to war and even if we do go to war there is this reluctance now uh continuing that same tradition that we see in the holy scripture regarding king david and king solomon we've saint saint basil's canons for soldiers this was in the early church saint basil the great would impose a period of penance for soldiers coming back from war who had shed blood even if it was a just war. So even if we're talking about a, a, you know, the Roman, for example, the Roman empire fought a contracted war with the Sasanian empire to the East. So um, this was more or less a just war. One can say, because the Sasanian empire was constantly invading the Roman empire in the Eastern borders. Um, so we, we have a, a just war situation in, even in the Roman empire, but St. Basil would, impose a penance on soldiers who shed blood even in a just war so they did not sin but nevertheless they shed blood so there's this this sort of there's this imperfection this pollution the pollution of this world going back to saint james to keep oneself unspotted from the world there is a sort of a spotting from the world this pollution from the world when we when you shed blood even if you do it without sin. And so St. Basil would pose a impose a penance so the soldier would have a period of uh, penance where he would not receive Holy Communion to cleanse himself of blood. Nevertheless, we also have the great cult of the soldier saints. So this shows, because there are some people who come along and assert that the early church was pacifist because they quote some quotes from Tertullian, Tertullian is a quasi, he's kind of like Origen. He's a quasi church father. He, he does have 
a number of important writings, but he's not always right. And he does make errors like origin. And so they quote some certain things from Tertullian or from uh, St. Martin of Tours. This is, uh, I understand, I believe it's St. Martin of Tours is quoted by Pope Francis in one of his, I think it was Fratelli Tutti or something, um, where there was an opposition to the death penalty by one of the early fathers. But the cult of the soldier saints proves very quickly that the early church was not at all pacifist because the early church venerated the soldier saints and they didn't, and they were all, you know, these were martyrs, but they were not at all condemned because they fought in the Roman empire's wars. St. George is a great example of that. Um, later on in the moral tradition, we have St. Alphonsus who summarizes and says that a soldier can go to war even if he's unsure if it's a just war because God has ordained the state as his authority. So even if you're not sure if it's a just war or not, you can go to war with, with a clear conscience. But if you are convinced that it is a unjust war, then that's another story. Um, now, what we see in the history of the church is that we have this pagan view of war, which is very bellicose. We have these different warring uh, empires. To the north of the Roman Empire, we have the various barbarian tribes. But as there is an increase of Christian culture, there is a decrease of the police and the army. Increase of Christian culture, decrease of police and army. You know, today in the United States, there's there's controversies over gun laws. People want to impose laws to stop gun violence or to restrict the sale and the possession of weapons. But that doesn't it doesn't do anything. People are sinful, violent people, whether they're using guns or knives or sharp objects. What really establishes peace is Christian culture. And we know this from history. Literally, the pagan barbarians were street thugs. And they were converted by the Christian church from street thugs into knights in shining armor, literally. The church did this. And there was a decrease of the standing armies, the professional armies, the police forces of the Roman Empire, because there was an increase of Christian culture. And here we have the truce of God and the peace of God. This was a this was established in many dioceses of Christendom, which was an excommunication. This is look at the wisdom of the wisdom of the church in this. The church established these periods of peace where it was unlawful to do any violence or make any war. So, for example, during Christmas, you could not make war. It sounds kind of funny, but these are the literal laws of Christendom. During Christmas, you can't make war. If you want to make war, wait till after Christmas. There was different days of the week. You couldn't make war on this day or that day. During Lent, can't make war during Lent. So notice that the, the church does not publish a complete ban on war, but promotes a tempered, gradual elimination of the bellicose violence of our forefathers, our pagan forefathers, who were street thugs. And it's through this, this gradual tempering of the, the violent fallen nature of our pagan forefathers that eventually converts them from street thugs into knights in shining armor. Now, remember, we're going to get back to this. Remember that peace and truce of God in that one cannot make war during Christmas. And Christmas is, starts on December 25, remember. It starts on December 25, and there's the octave of Christmas and the 12 days of Christmas, etc. So this is what creates the phenomenon of the Crusades. The Crusades are an imitation of Christ in which laymen lay down their lives for their brethren. And this is 
a an effort by the church, which the church blesses, to fight against the enemies of Christ who are destroying the faith. So, so the most important thing to defend in a just war is the faith, as we'll as we'll talk about in a minute with uh, modern just wars. And a key part here, a key, key difference here, is that in Christendom there were professional knights, but there were not these citizen armies. A knight, a nobleman, his job during peacetime was to take care of the populace. He had to, there was noblesse oblige. He had to use his money and power to put on feasts for the peasants. And when he was called upon, he had to go fight to defend the populace against the invading Vikings or the Mohammedans, etc. So their job was to defend the realm when called upon, but they were not a standing army in the sense that we have today. Let's continue. The two swords doctrine. This is important because it continues that same thread that we mentioned earlier of the higher perfection of the, uh, the, the complete peace, the bloodless individual. And this is where we get into this more. Um, the two swords doctrine is the traditional doctrine. It actually, um, if you go to one Peter five right now, there is a, um, the article by Peter Kwasniewski about the death penalty. It's very important on this. And I, let me, let me just, let me just bring that up real quick because it's critically important for this question. Um, the two, two sorts doctrine is the traditional doctrine of the, the lay and clerical classes, which govern Christendom. There is the, the clerics who wield the spiritual sword. And there are the, uh, the lay people who wield the temporal sword. So the lay people, their job is to govern the natural order using the temporal sword, literally a sword, which can execute capital punishment and execute a just war. And this is something that Kwasniewski really brings out beautifully here. So either in the death penalty teaching of Pope Francis, Either we have a change of church teaching that's that's heretical, or um, B, Pope Francis is merely stating that there is no longer any possible prudential situation in the entire world in which the death penalty may be justified in order to defend the common good of society from malefactors. So what this is saying is that Pope Francis is, it even if we have the lesser of the two evils, so the a option A is is bad enough. That would be heresy, but option B is a close second because Kwasniewski says this: if B is the correct interpretation, he was equal in error because not even the most extreme ultramontanist imaginable ever maintained that the papacy is endowed with a political prudence superior to and inclusive of the political prudence of all princes, presidents, prime ministers, parliaments, legislatures and courts of the entire world such that he is capable of knowing in detail what is right and just in every possible circ social circumstance. What Kwasniewski is bringing out here is that it is the lay order, it is our job as lay people who govern to mete out the death penalty as we see fit for the sake of the common good in our particular situation. Because even John Paul II, who did oppose the death penalty, he did not go so far as to say that he was going to dictate to all the nations of the entire world that they could not impose the death penalty. And that's why Cardinal Ratzinger clarified specifically in a political situation in 2004 that a Catholic can disagree with the Pope regarding just war and death penalty because a lay Catholic's job is to do those things. It's our job if we are rulers and this also goes for fathers. We're not meeting up the death penalty, obviously, but we are, um, you know, we're meeting out corporal punishment as necessary with our children. Um, it is our job as lay people to do this. 
So there, there's sort of an analogy to the corporal punishment of a father to the capital punishment and the just war of, of a Catholic state, which is meted out by the lay people. So this is the doctrine of the two swords. The lay power, it's our job to meet out the just war as necessary. So ultimately, we make the final decision on the. It's our job to make the final decision on this. It's our role. That's our role in Christendom. But the cleric has a higher role. The cleric should not mete out corporal, capital, or a just war uh, punishment. Here's St. Thomas Aquinas. So St. Thomas, this is in the same section with St. Thomas says it is lawful to kill in self-defense. However, he says that it is not lawful for a cleric. Listen to this, quote, It is unlawful for clerics to kill for two reasons. So he's saying kill in the most general sense of the word. So this is in the context, again, of, of killing in self-defense. He says, first, because they are chosen for the ministry of the altar, whereon is represented the passion of Christ slain, when he suffered, he threatened not, 1 Peter 2, 23. Therefore, it becomes not cleric to strike or kill. For ministers should imitate their master, according to Sirach 10, 2. As the judge of the people is himself, so also are his ministers, end quote. The other reason is because clerics are entrusted with the ministry of the new law, wherein no punishment of death or of bodily maiming is appointed. Wherefore, they should abstain from such things in order to that they may be fitting ministers of the New Testament. That's from Secunda Secundi, question 64, article 4. So there again, there is this higher perfection that clerics are called to, that clerics should not participate in killing. That is why... Clerics in, you know, the saints of the Crusades or the clerics, the chaplains of the Crusades, they were not killing people in the Crusades. They were ministering to all souls. That's their job because that's the most perfect imitation of Christ. As lay people, again, we have to sort of be stained with this world. We have to be stained with this, this natural world, this veil of tears. And so we do have to engage in corporal capital or just war punishment to secure a just peace, to secure the common good. We have to do this because we live in this world. But because clerics and also goes for religious, they are living the life of the world to come in a much more perfect sense in this life. And so they refrain, refrain from all violence. That's the two swords doctrine. Okay, so we're, we're coming up, finally, we're getting to uh, Martin Luther King here in just a minute. Um, but here's what happens with modern wars is that it is a return to the pagan view of war. So we have the English Civil War of the 17th century. That's the first, the return to the of the citizen professional army. Uh, we have the return of total war, the killing of civilians and infrastructure. We have the, the loss of Christian culture. Remember the peace and truce of God. Uh, there is a famous painting, painting in the United States called Washington Crosses the Delaware. And this is a depiction of a surprise attack that Washington uh, took against some Hussite mercenaries in the Revolutionary War in 1776. On December 26th, so this was on St. Stephen's Day at dawn, and the accounts indicate that Washington attacked these Christians, which would have been Luther, these Hussite Lutherans, because they were sleeping off their Christmas feasting. They were sleeping off their Christmas feasting. And he attacked them. Well, this is barbaric. This would not happen in Christendom because you, you can't, unless people were willing to be excommunicated, you can't you can't fight during Christmas. You cannot attack during Christmas. That's barbaric. And so this is a return. This is a loss of Christian culture. Now this is in contrast somewhat to what happened during World War 1, which is where there were in 1914 there were Christmas truces. This was a, an entirely spontaneous thing that was happening in the trenches between the Germans and the English and the French, where they just said, hey, it's Christmas. We got to stop fighting. So they decided to call a truce, and then they all feasted together. 
And after this happened in 1914, the bellicose bureaucrats who were pushing for all this horrible war put a stop to that. So we see that there is a increase of, as Christian culture decreases, there's an increase of uh, military intervention, police force, violence of every kind. And this is the return to a pagan attitude of war. So we have the first American Civil War that we discuss, um, at the AKA the Revolutionary War. It's a civil war because it was colonist versus colonist. Uh, and we've just we mentioned briefly some of the wars of empire of the United States. And then we have the second American Civil War known today as the Civil War in the 1860s. That was when there was an increase of total war. There was total war happening even in the Revolutionary War, but there was more in the Civil War. Uh, more technologies were being brought to bear on this. Um, and then we have World Wars One and Two, as we discussed. Again, it, it's a similar situation also um, in the same way as World War One and Two was sort of the ceasefire in which the victors punished the losers. It was the same thing with the uh, the Revolutionary War had a similar situation, but the, the American Civil War also punished the South which led to Jim Crow, which is ultimately what we'll talk about with Martin Luther King. And then after World War II, we have this American empire, this worldwide American empire. Before it was the Monroe Doctrine American empire, which is where we, the United States was taking over the continental United States and the Americas. And then after World War II, there is a global American empire. Now, this is... This is in opposition to the Soviet empire, which is more evil, obviously, but we have to admit that there is a similar anti-subsidiarity to both. This is where we have these wars of interventionism intervening in all these other countries in the United States and ultimately leading up to the 1990 war, Iraq one, and then Iraq II, the invasion. Uh, here is the, there are, there's a publisher that did, um, what's this publisher? Mm, Light in the Darkness publication. So this is the uh, traditional Catholic view. This was about the Iraq war number one. It's called Neocond. This is a collection of essays edited by Catholics. And they're not all Catholics, so not everything written in here is totally in line with Catholic doctrine, but it is a, um, a critique of the first neocon war, Iraq one. And then uh, there's neocon again, which is all about Iraq number two. So this is a traditional Catholic perspective on these neocon wars. So this is something that is critically important for us to understand that the, the uh, basically the neocon cold war narrative of American empire is, I mean, really you, you could even go back to Woodrow Wilson after world war one, and you could even go back even further. You could go back to Thomas Jefferson and his so-called quote, empire of Liberty end quote, his empire of Liberty. That is this imperial idea that is really just, a, it's a manifest destiny, which is really just a, um, a rehashing of Whig history with the British Empire. It's the same thing. It's just an Americanized version of the same sort of anti-gospel where we need to invade other countries and spread the gospel of our political order. Even though, as a Michigander, I love our political order. I think it's fantastic. I think it's great. But that does not justify us using violence to invade a country to impose our political order on another country that cannot be justified under just war doctrine. So let's talk about, um, and of course we didn't even mention the atomic bomb, atomic bomb, which destroys the center of Japanese Catholicism, Nagasaki. There was the cathedral of the Immaculate Conception destroyed. It was perhaps the largest church in Asia 
destroyed by the American atomic bomb. Um, now, I want to just touch on a few just wars. And then we'll talk about Martin Luther King. Um, first of all, the Crusades. There was the Eastern Crusade, Western Crusade, and Northern Crusade in Scandinavia, which is ultimately a defense of the faith, a defense of missionaries, um, a defense against invasion, especially in the case of Spain, a defense of pilgrims. So it's defense of the weak, defense of the gospel, defense of the faith. And this, above all, is what justifies the horror of war. Um, number two, I think of the Syriac Christians versus the Mongols. This is a lesser known history. Uh, but did you know that the Christian church stretched all the way to Japan uh, for hundreds of years, up to about 1300, the year 1300, which is when most of these Christians were destroyed by the Mongols. This would absolutely be a just war. We can also think of the other invasions with the Tatars in Russia. Um, but the fact that these Christians were wiped out almost completely, almost completely wiped out by the Mongols, absolutely a just war to fight against these vicious barbarians. Um, we have the Catholic wars against the Anglican regime, both in England and in Ireland. Uh, the Irish uprising of 1641 was declared a just war by the bishops. We have various Polish uprisings uh, in the 19th century, um, even though there was at least one of those that was mixed with false romanticism, which was condemned. But in and of itself, the uprisings were just. And then, of course, we have the Cristero War, which was a war against the communists these communist, these Mexican communists who had taken over Mexico and they were trying to destroy the faith. So this is another just war. So finally, let's get to Martin Luther King and we'll have any of your comments or questions that anyone wants to add to the discussion here. Martin Luther King. Now, Martin Luther King's primary influences on his doctrine are not actually the Holy Scripture, the Christian tradition, but rather Leo Tolstoy, who was a Russian Christian, but was a little, he was at odds with the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and he was a utopian. Gandhi obviously was not a Christian. And um, their ideas are what influenced Martin Luther King to develop his philosophy of nonviolence. Now, first, let's note that there is a good aspect to this. There's a good aspect of this nonviolence, which is turning the other cheek, forgiving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you. And we can see this, especially in the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955, which was a, an economic boycott in which Martin Luther King led the blacks of Montgomery to refuse to go on the bus because of their ill treatment, which was an injustice. So it was a nonviolent protest, which caused an economic crisis which ultimately forced the whites to give the blacks justice, let them sit wherever they like on the bus, et cetera. And in particular, after the boycott was completed, when, when Martin Luther King ended the boycott, he instructed his followers to forgive, to forgive the whites. This is certainly a very Christian attitude to forgive your enemies to love your enemies, to pray for your persecutors. But as, as his movement continued, Martin Luther King's nonviolent philosophy was tested because he did, in a Montgomery bus boycott, if I recall the history, there really was not any violence that happened in that particular movement. This was really the first thing that kind of put him on the map. But then he was his home was bombed. So we have violence attacking his wife and children with violence. And this is where his nonviolence, nonviolent um, philosophy was tested. And he chose at that time, there was, there was going to be, he, he was going to hire security to secure his home. And he chose at that time that his security should not have weapons. He should have nonviolent security. 
this I think is where Martin Luther King goes awry because it, it's basically a denial of the reality of just self-defense, just and violent self-defense, especially defending your wife and children. This is absolutely beyond the pale for a layman to embrace some sort of idea that one can just be nonviolent against an aggressor of your home. It's utopian in the sense of you're not living in reality. If the Syriac Christians believed in nonviolence against the Mongols, you know, they were wiped out. And here's what's interesting about the civil rights movement is that the, the, the nonviolent civil rights movement of Martin Luther King eventually spread into, uh, so for like the, the student nonviolent coordinating committee, SNCC, they had the, um, the bus, the interstate bus, um, movement, which is where they would, they would break the law of the bus. They would sit in different spots. They would break these laws and then they would commit to nonviolence so that all of the people who attacked them would, uh, they would attack them and beat them up. And the nonviolent civil rights protesters would refuse to fight back. And this is nonviolent. However, what happened was that this whole movement was broadcast worldwide at a time when the United States government was in a rivalry with the Soviet empire, the Soviet empire, obviously with an ideology that said that the United States was this capitalist regime, uh, you know, oppressing people. And they would point to the, what, what they would call the Negro cause, the, 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 you know, the whole, civil rights movement and they would say that look you you you're oppressing your blacks look at your you you say liberty and justice for all look at you know your hypocrites and so there was actually international pressure on the Kennedy administration and later the Johnson administration to send in the troops to send in the national guard to restore order and this is really what forced the hands of local rulers to overturn Jim Crow laws? So it's nonviolent in the sense that the civil rights protesters themselves refused to fight back. And there's a certain nobility to that, obviously. There's a certain, as we talked about, you know, that's that's an imitation of Christ in, in a sense. But it is false to claim that that's nonviolent because it is provoking, first, it's provoking violence to your to your protester or your to your uh, oppressor. It's provoking them to violence, and then it's provoking the federal government to get involved violently as well. And they did. They sent in the tanks and the National Guard. And these were that was the people in the 1960s who had to enforce an integration. So this is not a this is not a nonviolent movement. So this is the again, this is the reality. So if you're living in, in this utopian dream world where you can just nonviolently solve every every issue, even if there is, is a call for just violence. Uh, you know, you can promote this as this nonviolent. This is unfortunately what many Catholics in the United States have fallen for this. Uh, bishops, priests, they promote Martin Luther King as sort of this quasi-saint. Again, he did great things. There were great things that he did and said, obviously. But... There are issues with his doctrines, including this pacifism. Uh, and finally, we we touch on John Lennon. This was a uh, Deacon James Toner wrote an article uh, last year. It was against pacifism, and he quoted John Lennon's song, Imagine, you know, and imagine there is no heaven, you know, nothing, nothing to kill or die for, it says. And John Lennon was assassinated. And this is the reality. This is the reality that we live in, unfortunately. This is the veil of tears that we live in that sometimes it's necessary to use violence that is proportionate and just and only in necessity. But this is something that Catholics need to have a 
anti-war stance, but not a pacifist stance. Martin Luther King became extremely controversial when he condemned the Vietnam War. Now, looking back, I think there's something to that, obviously. Um, but we cannot condemn war on the basis of a pacifist stance. We can be anti-war, and we must be anti-war. This is the Catholic attitude. We can't be pacifist. So that is the end of the presentation. The church is anti-war but not pacifist. So this is what I intended to bring out in response to Eric Sammons. And this should be our attitude going into the second war, the second or the second year of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, the Russia-Ukraine conflict that's been going on. Uh, we should support our Ukrainian brethren defending themselves against an aggressor, but we should not be too quick to support a war we should be have an anti-war stance. And this is the difficulty. And, and, you know, Catholics of goodwill are going to disagree as well about should war be waged in this or that case. We're going to disagree, but we should not. We should never have the attitude that we delight in war. And that, unfortunately, is the attitude of the American neocon movement, including Catholics. So we need to have this stance of anti-war, this hatred of war and a desire to prevent war and to negotiate a just peace if war has already begun, as it already has in Ukraine. But we need to have this anti-war attitude. So that is all we have. To, uh, any comments from anybody? Teresa, thanks for listening, Teresa. She says, we should support the people. I think you're talking about the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. Especially uh, our brethren. You know, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is the largest Eastern Catholic Church that exists. Um, and so we need to have absolute, totally full support for Ukrainians. You know, if if I was a Ukrainian and I lived in Ukraine, I would be fighting against the Russians right now. Everybody, I think every man should be doing that if they're there defending their nation against an invasion. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that. The United States has to be involved, per se. It's a it's a very, very difficult situation. Perhaps, perhaps not. Um, and Teresa saying, and the Russian people. Yeah, so this is, um, bringing this up, finally, th this is our, uh, this is our cause at 1P or 5, is promoting, in response to the war, especially promoting the Russian Catholic icon of Our Lady of Fatima. This is promoted by Russians and, um, Russians and Ukrainians is this icon, which we'll, we'll pray an Ave at the end here. Teresa says, I don't trust this Ukraine war, especially those supporting it. Yeah, I, I was very surprised to see a very bellicose attitude arising already, really in February and March of 2022 among American Catholics. It, it really was sad to see this same kind of thing happening. Um, Richard says, what about the size of military? Again, uh, specifics do come down to the lay order to make that final decision as to what is a just size of the military. Um, but we know that the United States is the American empire. You know, we have we have um, military bases across the entire world. Is that really necessary? I would say no. How, how could that possibly be necessary to, uh, you know, the idea is subsidiarity. Every nation should be uh, defending itself and take care of its own business. And only in the most extreme situation should we intervene in a situation that has become, you know, like a world war. And, you know, there is the potential for that in this situation, obviously, as we have known over this past year. So going into this new year, uh, I appeal to all Catholics to have an anti-war attitude, but not pacifist. So with that, let's pray an Ave. Let's, let's offer all this to Our Lady. Let's ask Our Lady to support, end the war in Ukraine, establish justice between all of the parties, the warring parties in Ukraine. And we pray especially for our brethren in Ukraine and Russia. And we pray for counsel, for lay ru rulers, 
to be establishing peace with a true anti-war attitude. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum liarbus, et benedictus frutus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl, pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus is King.